right, welcome, 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 everybody. Tonight we start the, the, the song of songs of Solomon. Marriage, sex, romance, love in the Bible. Are you excited? Yeah. All right, two of you and me are going to have a great, great time. If this is your first night, we do, we do have a kids' program. It looks like most of the kids have gone on up. They will, they will not be doing a child-friendly version of what we're doing this afternoon. There is no child-friendly version of this. There is no Veggie Tales on the Song of Solomon's. Uh, you, would, you would never look at Larry the Cucumber the same way again. We're going to be in Song of Solomons, verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says, the song of songs which is Solomon's. Now, we're in a day and an age that really needs this song, not just a biblical view of sex in general, but particularly, here's my thesis, here's my argument starting up for the uh, uh, series, is that we need the Song of Songs of Solomon, particularly because it's a 3,000-year-old book. It is old. It is still wise. It still has its pizzazz, the kids call it, right? It's still got the powerful, romantic, thriving power in it, <clears throat> and we need it because of the way that our world is currently wired. There's a, there's a few reasons. First of all, because the culture we find ourselves in now is not just immoral, but it's confused, Meaning when, Christ, when people become Christians, and maybe this is a lot of you, young adults become Christian, come to the Lord Jesus, you may now be trying to be moral, but you're still very confused. So you want to be on the right track, but they are covered by sand, or you're not even sure how they work. So, so that while you're uh, 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 wanting to be moral, you're very confused. We need the Song of Solomon to clarify things. In, in our world, and this is, a, this is often a surprise when I tell older Christians, or just just more conservative, sort of uh, older people because of the world that you grew up in compared to the world that young adults now grew up in. Almost all of the people getting sort of young adults, graduating university and whatnot, sort of age these days, they grew up as far as they can remember that back. They pretty much had a access to the internet that was unfiltered. Uh, there were smartphones. There was uh, devices that made all of these things in an unprecedented way accessible. So we have this very confused generation because not just internet access, but also sexual, like, like our world is, it's made a religion out of sex and they're infant Baptists. They get kids young, they baptize them into this sexual confusion and as they're growing up, it is, it's all that they know, whether it's accidental or, or, or incidental or on purpose. Many people I talk to will say something like, you know, I, I, was ex I don't even remember how old I was when I was exposed to this stuff, pornography or sexual content, four, five, six years old. Before they were in primary school, learning about primary colors, they've seen nudity and sex acts. The current uh, statistics uh, uh, and research reckons that the average age of exposure to hardcore pornography, so not just the normal porn that we see every time you hop on a bus and go under a billboard or sit next to the big posters on the side of the bus. I had my four-year-old ask me last week, why is that lady wearing no clothes on the bus? And this big poster, my answer was her daddy didn't love her very much. But I hate to have to answer that question for a four-year-old. This is our world. It is everywhere. But not just the normal pornography that has just been normalized for us, but hardcore pornography being accessed. Average age is like 10 years old. So if you think, well, when my son starts hitting puberty, we'll have the pornography talk, it's about five years too late on average. So we're in this age of people that are growing up extremely confused in this hypersexualized, violent sex free love, LGBT, rainbow of perversion, men in leather, doing stuff in front of kids that a generation ago would have been getting you arrested. Now it's published onto national TV, the sort of stuff that should have you wound up wrapped in a carpet 
in a dumpster in an alley now gets you some coverage on national TV. So where things are just being normalized, we will see, here's my theory, we will see polygamy and pedophilia legalized and normalized in our generation without a reformation and revival of some widespread manner. Polygamy, pedophilia, normalized. We're already seeing that start. <clears throat> Our world is very confused. Sex is extremely cheapened. Most young adults are sexually active with strangers. Like it used to be the grease lightning days, the, the, the greasers and the running around with your 56 Chevy and picking up the hot girls. It used to be the question on your first date, did you get very far? Did you hook up? The question now is, did you even go on a date when you hooked up with this stranger that you met on an app? That's the new normal, meeting up, Doing whatever the first time you're meeting. Uh, uh, Michael Foster, uh, he was here, here with us a while ago. I read him one time saying, sex now, for this coming up uh, adult, young adult generation, who's, who, the technology and the culture got to the kids really before their parents knew how to disciple them rightly, widespread, sex is the new first base. Getting to know each other, dates, meeting the family, that's all third, second, uh, third, fourth base. Now sex is first base. Very confused generation in such a way that what older generations could have assumed need to be reiterated today or it's just not fair to the young people growing up for Christ. So like that old uh, British town that was digging a football field and they found Roman roads underneath it. So also we need to re-dig re up and re-establish and re-clarify the old, ancient, important foundations for uh, the way we think about sex and romance in the church. <coughs> so one reason we need the Song of Solomons is because of the sexual confusion. People have no idea what's going on. The second reason is because of the sexual condemnation. I, I preach the Bible, preach the whole counsel of the word. That means we get to sex, and I talk about fornication and polygamy. and Well, not polygamy. I mean, yeah, polygamy, but I mean porn, pornography and adultery and all, and, and all these things. And meaning that, that we teach on sex seems to th feel like, in most people's minds, we preached against sex. So that whenever we think, what does the Bible have to say about sex, we usually think, like the old joke, it's filthy, dirty, disgusting, and vile. Save it for the one you love the most. And that's, that's sort of our view of sex. It's always, or most, I mean, there's nobody in the congregation now that when we go through all those lists of sexual sins aren't condemned and left guilty in some major way. Something in the past, something that you're struggling with right now. And what that means is that often when you think God, me, and the, the topic of sex, you usually feel guilt. What the Song of Solomons comes in is build this, build this positive vision, a beautiful uh, a view and sort of uh, ideal, this, this wonderful, beautiful picture up on the wall that we want to aim at so that we don't just think, I've been immoral and when we talk about sex, I feel guilty, but more so, there is a beautiful thing that God is calling us to and we all want to envision that and walk towards it. Now, the third reason we need something like the Song of Solomon is on that avenue of beauty. Christians need a, a moral palette, a palette, a moral gag reflex, we could call it. If you're living in this world, no matter how conservative you are, no matter how biblical you are, no matter how reformed and wonderful in your theology, your beliefs and your views and how right-wing and go for it you are, Every single one of us has been discipled to some degree by the culture around us so that our taste buds have been desensitized. 
so that, I've heard it said, we need to regain our moral or spiritual gag reflex. Here's, the, here's what often happens. We as conservative Christians often think homosexuality, LGBT, transgenderism, and all of that stuff, that's not as nice as the biblical view of love, but it's possible that it's romantic. It's romantic, it's just not lawful. So it's, it's nice for them, and, and there can be a nice Pixar movie about it, and there'll be roses and a wedding, and yeah, there'll be two brides, or yeah, there'll be two grooms, but that's nice, it's, it's romantic for them, it's just not lawful. Now that's a very dangerous mindset to be in, first of all because it's so subtle, you don't even realize you're thinking that. But really, what you're thinking, when you are thinking that, what we naturally, accidentally are, are, are confessing is that there's some ways that a homosexual relationship can picture God's good image in marriage. There is some way that a man dressing up as a woman can image God's goodness in some manners. It's just not lawful. And what the Song of Solomon comes in is tells us Sex, marriage, romance in the Bible, your sexual creation by God, it is not just a matter of black and white do's and don'ts. It is also a matter of beauty. So that when we look at things like homosexuality, we're supposed to not just think beautiful but not righteous. We're supposed to dry reach. If we were really having our sensitivities, our, our taste buds, our, 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 our gag reflex informed by Scripture, we would see things like that and be repulsed. And we're not, because we've been largely discipled by our culture. Now, what Song of Solomon's comes in is, it comes in and it builds this beautiful vision, which shows us in this light. You see it throughout the passages. It's, it's touch, it's taste, it's vision, it's rhyming. It's, it's this every sense that the Bible has given us to remember that God's design for love and marriage is not just right, it's not just good for you, it's beautiful. Homosexuality with all of its... It's, it's, one of the, it's like partially, it's a definition of narcissism. Somebody loves themselves so much, they want to marry someone more like them than unlike them. They can't even deal with a different gender. They love themselves. It's unproductive. It's, it's actually in a category of gross to describe it, just anatomically. I won't do it, but it is actually disgusting, not just wrong. So it is with the free love scene that we have. Girls on birth control tablets that destroy hormonal systems and, and being used like objects and meeting strangers and getting STDs and STIs and getting checked up and having to go on antibiotics for all of these things. It is a disgusting scene, not just a wrong scene. The, 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 it's malodorous and distasteful. It's like the, 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 the sexual scene that the world holds out is like you walk into a public toilet, there's a fold-out table, there's toad skin soup and then toilet water as a side. Compared to, you've walked out on a beautiful oak deck. It's sunset coming over the mountains. You sit down at a big timber hardwood table. And there's a massive ribeye fillet sitting there to a nice medium rare. And a 2018 Barossa Shiraz in a crystal glass with roast veggies and fresh salads. And it's a cool night with a breeze and the fire's crackling and you're there with the one you love. That palette is the difference and that's what Song of Solomon shows us. It's not just good, it's not just righteous. Biblical, marital, romance, sex and love. It's safe, 
It's a refuge. It's fulfilling. It, it, it affirms instead of going against our conscience. It's productive. It can make children. It's morally good, and it's got God's smile upon it, like a greenhouse in full sun. Everything's growing, and it's thriving, and it's flourishing, and it's healthy. That's what the Song of Solomons gives us, is this romantic, beautiful vision that restores to us our, our spiritual taste buds. So we're excited for the Song of Solomons, aren't we? All right, here we go. More of you are keen. Uh, look at the, the first verse we said before. It's called the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. That literally means, you know, in the Bible, we, we have phrases like king of kings, meaning he's the king over kings, or the, the holy of holies, meaning in the holy temple, there is the most holy place. And in the same way, this phrase is being used. It's the song of songs. It is the best song of Solomon's. Solomon wrote, we learn in the king, letter, books of the kings, he wrote 3,000 songs, original songs, singer-songwriter songs. He didn't out, outsource the writing of the lyrics. He wrote them. 3,000 songs and 1,005 proverbs. That is extremely impressive. And this book is the best one. This is the, this is the Solomon's Greatest Hits album. That's what this is. If you uh, uh, love Johnny Cash, everyone in heaven will. If you love Johnny, he had 50, only 50, no, 60-something original songs. He was the king, but only 50. Uh, Solomon had 3,000. If you're more of a pop person, like Satan, Taylor Swift, she has about 50 original songs that she wrote. Impressive, nothing like Solomon. Michael Jackson, the time that he died, if he's dead, we don't know. There's some interesting YouTube clips. <laughs> Before they killed him, he had 150 original songs. So hell will be filled with all those original pop songs, but me and Johnny Cash will be in heaven. Song of Solomon's is the best songs that the greatest songwriter ever wrote, and it's about love, marriage, sex, and romance. It's amazing. It's good. It is the Song of Songs. Now, there is a, a sort of a, a history of interpretation that is pretty funny and diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum. All right, so there's this uh, tradition that has been called the allegorical approach to Scripture. Uh, and it really hit Song of Solomon's hard, and it hit every dork branch on the way down when it fell out of the ugly tree. This allegorical approach to Scripture says it's not literal. You should not, must not. It is a theological error to read in the Song of Solomon's a story or a poem between a husband and a wife. That is debased and that is sinful. It is actually primarily a song about God and his people. Or in the New Testament, we would say Christ and the church. That, that is uh, uh, the, the allegorical. So whenever you read anatomy or body parts or hugging, it's all spiritual. Now, guys like Oregon loved this. Uh, in the early centuries, he actually went and castrated himself, literally chopped everything off in order to stay away from temptation. Instead, tragically, instead of doing what the Bible says, which is get married, because he belonged to this generation when singleness had started to be dangerously preferred. And that's very similar to our age today. A lot of evangelicalism, this, this notion is sneaking in that singleness is just better why, why, across the, 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 the board. Now, Paul does say that singleness, in your season of singleness, don't waste it. You can be so effective before the marriage anxieties and responsibilities build up on you. He has this other category for a few of us who will be called to singleness because of the danger 
danger of the mission that he's calling. But by and large, God really expects, and statistically anyway, over 90% of us will get married. And the Bible builds this positive view of marriage, and these guys had sort of preferred celibacy, and even like sex in marriage, if you were married, it was only like a necessary evil sometimes with a blindfold on, think about other things, and then take a cold shower because it's necessary evil. And so these things started being chipped away at to the point where, you know, priests started being required to be single, celibacy was way more holy. Oregon in the second, third century, he went and castrated himself. Uh, And they had this view, this sort of grew out of that view, sort of borrowing from a bit of the Jewish tradition uh, that, that this book is allegorical. Bernard of Clairvaux, he was in the 10th, 12th, 11th, 12th century. He was a Catholic and he was teaching this. And he taught from an allegorical point of view. He preached 86 sermons on just the first two chapters. I don't promise we won't do that, but we're probably not going to do that. And what is hilarious and frustrating, he was coming from this allegorical point of view, so it's all spiritual. You have to work pretty hard in the book to make that argument. And he kept on doing it. Now, what is hilarious, his audience was a monastery of celibate single dudes. That, that is torture. Why would you do that to an isolated group of celibate men 80, over 18 months worth of Sundays, you're coming to church, opening back up, you have to read the romantic portions and convince yourself and pinch yourself it's not about a woman. That is sinful. So that was, that was Bernard of Clairvaux and other guys like that. Rabbi Akiba said, he's a guy who said, this book, all of scripture is holy, but this book is the holy of holies. Amen. But then he said, it's only about God and Israel. And in his day, the tradition had been that romantic types had sung the Song of Solomons at their, at their weddings, which is like a good vibe, super awkward if you've got your mum and your grandma and your, her, you know, your new father-in-law sitting in the front line. Uh, they who sung the Song of Solomons at secular events, said Rabbi Akiba, were going to hell and had no portion in the, in the kingdom to come. He was pretty emphatic about this, and to me, he sounds like a dork. But Rabbi Akiba said that. He, he felt that there was way too much physical, erotic, romantic stuff in here to be taken literally. So back to Oregon, the guy who cut himself off. He says, if you're under 30, you should not read this book. Now, I don't see that in the text. It's not here, but he says, you know, it's way too tempting. It'll be bad for you. God's word will lead you to sin. What a horrible mindset to have. Just blaming God for our uh, wrongful twistings. Wrong. But anyway, he said, if you're not 30, don't read it. Uh, It's way too dangerous. It's not fitting for the church. But we believe all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. For the aforementioned reasons, I think it's needed and it's going to be profitable for us. I'm commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. I can't say this is a suffering for me. But, uh, you know, I'm going to try to make you enjoy it as well. Single people... You've got to get the ball rolling, so here you go. Underneath all of your seats is an engagement ring that you can utilize afterwards. But, you know, the question becomes, yes, we sort of, it's dangerous, and I think rather condescending to single people and to the young and unmarried to say, don't let them read or think about this book. It'll lead them to sin. They're seeing it everywhere else. They may as well hear something from a biblical point of view. But the other, like, what's the other option? You can't forbid it. You can't thou shalt not read any of the Song of Solomons until you're 30 years old. Can you imagine a high school fella getting home from school and his mum meets him on the doorstep? 
what did I find under your bed? In the King James of all things, I saw I swear I was holding it for a friend. It's not mine. I wasn't reading it. We gotta love it. We gotta find a blessing in it. So we're going to do that. Now we take rather than the allegorical, the natural reading, which is that it's about the romance of marital love. Secondarily, of course, there is the foreshadowing of Christ and his church and God's love in redeeming sinners, like a, a groom comes in and rescues his wife, but it is primarily dealing with sexual, romantic, loving, pursuit, desire, and marriage and long-lasting marriage. Now, it is striking. I'm gonna Obviously, it wouldn't be fair to everybody who disagrees with me on this way of reading it. Of course, it's striking. You get there in like July, August in your Bible reading plan. You go, is this like a 21st century translation of the Bible? I did not know this was in here. It is striking the things that it says. However, it's very implicit, like it's suggestive and implicit, but it's not explicit. It's not crass. It leaves, to use Paul's language, it leaves the unpresentable parts of the body unpresented. It leaves them veiled. It leaves them covered. It is creative rather than clinical. It's creative. It's not, a, you know, bright lights, latex glove, pointing at body parts and explaining processes. It's not that. It's creative. It's, it's poetic rather than propositional, right? It's, it's a rousing of affections rather than anatomical. This is not Professor Solomon with his glasses on and a pointer stick with a diagram of human anatomy saying, the female body is made up of, he's not anatomical, it's, it's got lots of language of fruit and rivers and gardens and animals, and she gets compared to a horse in tonight's uh, 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 passage, which is confusing for us. It is evocative, but not explicative. It is not an educational sex manual, nor a smutty romantic novel telling a sexual story. It does evoke desires, this is important, it does evoke desires without encouraging lust. It evokes desires for God's good things and his order and his gift of marriage and love and sex without evoking lust. So if you lust, that's not God's fault. That's your fault. We need to repent. But also just get used to the fact he put this in the scripture. It's good for us to read. And, and so what it wants you to do, this, this book is written in such a way, what it wants you to do is vision yourself in your marriage in these pages. Married couples, do this. As you read it and as we think about it, picture yourself as the husband and the wife and kind of envision what your marriage could be in the beautiful, idealized sense. Engage dating couples, do the same. Think of carefully, as well as single people without somebody on your arm. Do it carefully so as to avoid lust, but what the book wants you to do is envision a kind of wonderful marriage on the horizon that you want to start working towards. And as you see these things, it wants you to desire them without desiring them out of due time. It says over and over again, the, the repeated theme, do not awaken love before it desires, before it's time. Don't do that. But desire, desire, desire the love in its good time. And, and, and so th this condescending way of saying singles shouldn't read it, that's wrong. If you're a single person or if you're not yet married or if you're engaged, don't let yourself think this isn't for me. I need to just suppress, suppress, suppress. Don't think about it. That never works. Never works. You're always just going to end up pushing your sexual sin into the corners 
into the darkness and engaging with them anyway. Don't feel bad for desiring it, but what you can be doing then is, is, is you're not sitting in limbo. If you're single and we build this vision for a beautiful, glorious, godly, loving, romantic marriage, what you should be doing then is seeing yourself as tilling the soil. Okay, maybe you don't have all the crop and the seeds and the gear has arrived yet, but you can be tilling the soil. You're, you're mixing the cement to pour this foundation. You're preparing for what is to come and having this, if you have no vision, then there's no direction. So this will give you a, a beautiful, evocative, wonderful, romantic vision to work towards. Now look at verse 1. I know we keep going to verse 1. We'll see how we go. Uh, back to verse 1 again. We're four words in. It says, which is Solomon's? Now, the authorship here is debated. I don't think there's enough reason to confidently say it wasn't Solomon. So we'll sort of come at it from an approach that assumes it was Solomon about Solomon. Now, he had three, how many he had? He had a thousand wives by the end of his life. Uh, so he, a lot of people say this couldn't have been him. He wasn't this romantic. Well, God does all sorts of unlikely things with unlikely people, so maybe it was. Some people think it was written by a poet sort of to Solomon, as like a gentle rebuke of what he had become, saying, return to your first love. Some people think it was somebody as a harsh rebuke against Solomon. Uh, uh, there's different views, but I don't think there's enough reason to sort of confidently say it's not him, so we're going to come at, his, at it as if it is a poetic fiction about him and the, his first wife, the Shulamite woman. So look at verse 2 now. We've called sort of this section and tonight's uh, sermon, A Lady in Love, because she does most of the talking and she's in love with this guy, Solomon. Look at verse 2. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She is desiring her husband. She is wanting him to come at her. And he, she doesn't want this, you know, sort of culturally appropriate uh, public affection level of, you know, a nose kiss in their culture or, you know, European side peck. She wants his mouth on her mouth. That's what she said. For your love, she says, is better than wine. This is the word for lovemaking. This is sexual love, romantic love. It's better than wine. I have lots of it and I don't wake up feeling horrible. I have lots of it and it's only good for me. She loves the love of her husband. She goes on to say, your anointing oils are fragrant. Gentlemen, deodorant, antiperspirant, cologne, not Lynx Africa, not Lynx, not Lynx. Cologne. Ask somebody. Ask your dad. The difference between antiperspirant and deodorant. One masks the... I'm getting into it now. But one masks the smell, one ceases the smell. There's difference. So deodorant, showers, soap, all those sorts of things. His oils are fragrant. He has nice cologne. He goes to Aesop. Your name is oil poured out. Okay? So she's moving through these senses. That's what good love is like. It's not just good looking. It's not just touch. It's not just voice. It's all of the senses. Speech, touch, smell, warmth. It's all those things. And she's saying, you give me an overwhelming sense when I'm with you of love and affection and it's uncontrollable. She also says, this is the important part, your name is oil poured out. That means that his reputation is godly. His name in the public arena, his name at church makes people react with a respect. He walks in the room, people stand up a little straighter. He, he's not, his name is not, a, is not a clown show. When he gets mentioned, everybody giggles and laughs and thinks, poor gal, she's with him. And that is part of the blessing of, remember, when, when, gals, when you're pursuing a guy, 
One of the dangers is that you see all these other things, maybe it does smell good, maybe it does have a nice car or truck and other stuff, but you forget that what you're connecting yourself to for life is his reputation. That's why you take his name. That's why all of those things happen. His reputation is going to be on you. It's like his smell is going to be on you, right? And so if he does not have a good name, good reputation, a godly sort of a, a, a character known by other wise people, your life is going to be hard. Bad guys are always sort of leading the girl away onto her own. You, me, against the world, babe. Of course, your parents hate you. They don't understand love. And he sort of, she thinks, you know, I can fix him. I'll make him into a, a good guy. But that is a lie. When he is dating you, he is that is the best version of himself that he can possibly show you. If that's trash, he has nothing to offer. So you want somebody with a good reputation that other godly men respect. His, his name is oil poured out. It smells beautiful. <clears throat> his name is a song to her ears. That's why she says, therefore the virgins love you. Like all the young gals in Jerusalem, they wish they could have you. They wish they were going to get married to you. They wish they could be with you, but they can't because you're with me. And that feels good, doesn't it, ladies? When your husband does not say, I'm already married, you can't run away from me, you get whatever you got. Rather, when he presents himself and speaks in a way that, that you, no, you don't want other people to be jealous, but you like it when he turns heads, you like it when he's something to appreciate. And you can say, that's mine. I'm proud of this beast-turned-husband man. <clears throat> now, this is like the ladies at the red carpet. They're all screaming. They love Solomon. He's the most beautiful, tall, he's the king. They love him. All the girls at the red carpet. But she says to him, take me out of here. Right? She leans into him at the party and goes, come on, let's get out of here. Let's go back to our place. Sweep me off my feet, honey. Draw me after you. Let's run away. The king has brought me into his chambers. There's not a spiritual meaning of that. That's bedchambers. They're going to bed. That's what, and they're not going to sleep, if you know what I mean. Now, then we get to this section of the backup singers. In verse, I think it's four, uh, verse, uh, yeah, halfway through verse four, it, maybe in your subheading in your Bible, it says others. This is the backup singers. This is the, the dew whoppers. It's like a musical. And there's girls on the microphone sort of following them through the scenes, and they're sort of singing the important parts, uh, uh, which, is, which is cool. Um, I knew a guy who had paid to have a... Uh, I heard a story of a dude who paid to have a, a quartet follow his wife throughout the office on Valentine's Day. That would be cool. If I won the lottery, I would have a full-time bagpipe tattoo following me my whole life, and this would be it. They, this, the backup singers would be the bagpipers, but that's not what it is in Song of Solomon's. And they say, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So they're saying, amen, sister. He's good. You're good. And this is something where the community of faith comes in and says, this isn't just two young people in passionate love. The Song of Solomon is, is all about passionate love. But it's not passionate love outside of the avenue and brackets of God's good design. So the people of God are saying, not only is it passionate, not only is it beautiful, it doesn't just make a good book, it's got God's smile on it. And so we sing with you, we rejoice in you. This is a good union. Uh, and, uh, and so what we see in the first few verses is this wife who is very, very forward. She has no problem with telling her husband what she wants. Now, she's not bossing him around, but she's like inviting him in an alluring way. Here's what I like. Here's what I want. Here's what I'd wish. And men love this. 
Wives, maybe your background makes you feel bad about, you know, romantic things or whatever. Don't be embarrassed of telling him what you want. And this is, you know, we read the book. It's like in sex, in romance, in the meals, in where they go on holidays. He doesn't know what you're thinking. You're a floating Rubik's Cube in another language and he's colorblind. He wants, he likes, when you say, I like this, I don't like that, I'd love this, I'd love that, I'd love to go here, do this. It's good in romance to be, and it's not unbiblical. Like she's obviously, she's this, she thinks patriarchally, she's a complementarian, but she's forward with her speaking. She speaks double what he says in, in this whole book, which is every wife I've ever known. It's biblical and it's good. But I remember, that I, you know, I remember one time, this was years ago. This is one of the best things Joy's ever done. Joy made me promise. when I, I didn't promise, but she wanted me to. When I do this series, no personal anecdotes. Way too embarrassing. So I've got a friend, and his wife <laughs> is named Joy. And one of the things that his wife did for him was that early on in their marriage, she just gave him a list of flowers I love, flowers I hate. Wow, that made his job so much easier. Because what I can do now is I can just go into the... <laughs> Just go into the florist, and I don't have to think. That looks good. like colors. She got, told me what seasons they all come in. I'm the best husband one or two days a year because I have that list. So I just walk into the florist, cold room, like C-3PO, and they go, what are you looking for? I'm like, these ones right here, please help. And they give me what they are, and I pay for it, and I take it home, and she likes arranging, so that makes my job easy. Just be very open and forward. That's like in the flower example, but in every other avenue, feel free to be open forward, be ready, hungry, desirable, healthy. It's very good in marital covenant, right? In marital covenant. With a man who's given you his life and his last name and a commitment to be with you till he's dead, those things are very safe. With a guy who hasn't given you that, it is extremely dangerous. You reach out, you will always be hurt and vulnerable. But in covenant marriage, it is very, very good. All of the chastity is thrown off in the marriage bed and love. All right, and then they start using all these words of love. So look at verse 5 onwards. They start throwing back and forth to each other all of this romantic, beautiful uh, uh, love. So gentlemen, wives, words of loving affirmation, use them with each other. Verse 5, she starts with some of her insecurity. She says, I'm very dark, a little bit confident though, she says, I'm very dark but lovely. This isn't ethnicity, this is her complexion. She's going to explain to us a little bit later why. She says, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, right, these dark curtains, do not gaze at me because I am dark, right? Girls say, I didn't say anything. Lie. You talk with your eyes. Girls look and they, the up look, the side look, the squint look. You have a whole language. I've never decoded it, but I know it. Girls can talk in a language with their eyes and she notices. She's saying, don't look at me like that. I'm very self-aware, a little bit insecure about her dark skin. Uh, she says, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me keep the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. What she's saying is this. I come from a family where my dad wasn't around. Maybe he's dead. I come from, and so my, my brothers, they were kind of harsh to me. They kicked me out into the garden and made me work, which means I was under the sun a whole bunch. I had a huge tan, and we think girls spend hundreds of dollars to get painted orange because they think that's hot. Why is she complaining about being dark? In their culture, it was a class thing. The, the, the darker women were obviously poorer and worked outside a lot. 
the fairer you were, the probably more rich and royal you were because you got to sit inside all the time and eat your grapes and whatnot. So in their culture, this standard of beauty was a matter of darkness and lightness. And she's saying, I'm aware I'm dark. Stop pointing it out. I feel bad. It's because I'm, I'm, I'm the Shulamite woman. I come from the north of Israel. I was a farm girl, dirt under her fingernails, denim overalls, big gumboots, hat, rode a horse, all that sort of stuff. She's a, she's a rural girl from the Shulamite region up in the north. And she then goes on in verse 7. Tell me who my soul loves. She goes to her husband. Where do you pasture your flock? Where you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Now, this is where girls get a little bit of anxiety, right? And she's starting to miss him. And she's saying, I feel insecure about my looks and I want to come and be with you. You're away from me. You're working long hours. How can I be with you? And she says, I don't want to be like the veiled women, which is what prostitutes used to be. They cover themselves up and solicit and walk around. Basically what she's saying is, I don't want to have to come to your offices and ask around, hi, I'm here to see Solomon Davidson, as if, you know, she's been ordered for a, for a, for a men's group or something. She doesn't want to come in and feel ashamed like, hey, I don't know where he is, but can you point me to my husband? She doesn't want to feel like she's chasing him. She wants to be invited. So she says, where are your flocks, man? Come on, where? Because at the noontime, they find a big tree in shaded area with water and they sit down and it can be very romantic. So she's saying, where are you? Where are you working? Come and let me find you. In today's world, this might be an example of you know, a little fax goes through the husband's office, says, I know you take an hour's break at lunch. I've got a hotel room just around the corner. I'll see you at 1 p.m. Thank you very much. I'm a wife that loves you. Fill in the gaps. And he says, I would love to take my lunch break doing that. That's what she's doing. She's going to go visit him at work on the field under a tree alone on the grass and love him well. That's what she's saying. And so he sort of responds. Look at verse 8. He actually, the, the commentators say, he teases her. He makes fun of her. This is what good husbands do. A little gentle teasing of the overly anxious wife. She's going, where are you? You're at work. I want to be with you. And he goes, well, if you don't know, my beautiful woman, the shepherd will be, wait for it, with some of his sheep. Right? He's kind of making fun of her and giving this really obvious example. He goes, if you don't know where to find me, right? It, it, it's like a, it, if he was to respond with a bit of a tease, like, look, I want to be with you too, but... I'm at work. Somebody's got to look after the flock. Like, I'm, I'm making money for the family. Don't overcomplicate this, baby. Uh, but, he says, I'm up at the sheep pen. You know where to find me. Feel free to come along. So, one of the things that men do with their wives is they sort of become this gravity, this rock, this center of mass in the family, and you manage her anxiety with just a bit of emotional stability. That's the masculine energy that sort of balances out the female naturally a little bit more anxious energy. About 99% of husbands know exactly what this is like. And he talks to her with a little bit of a tease and a little bit, and a cute nickname as well. He says, oh, if you don't know, oh, most beautiful among women. He uses all these wonderful nicknames for it. Women, do you like nicknames? All right. Don't, don't use any. I'm just going to tear this sheet right out of here. And no, you know what? That's on you. That was your chance. He's never going to call you a nickname ever. You're going to be Sharon or your first name and your full name the rest of your life. You don't get a nickname. Do you love nicknames? All right. 
up the back, I hear the amen. You get a cute nickname uh, from your husband. Uh, he calls her, oh, my most beautiful one. He keeps on calling her my love, right? It's a gentle, he settles her soul with a gentle little nickname. And again, he makes fun of her. One of the best examples of this in history is Martin Luther. He's very sarcastic, very witty, made fun of his wife back and forth all the time in really romantic, not mean, not degrading, really romantic ways. He, he used to have this uh, nickname for her, Dear Katie. Sometimes she was Lord Katie because she had this, you know, household and farm and she brewed beer because she's cool. And she, he would go away on these long work trips to lecture and write and all these things around Europe and Germany. And she would be back at home. They'd write letters back and forth. One of his favorite names to call her was Dear Katie, right? Catherine von Bora Luther was her name. And now he, um, there's this one letter that they're writing back and forth. And he says, I wish I could be home with you among my fine wine and beer and my beloved wife, or should I say my beloved Lord, because she was so good at managing everything. Or in another one, he says, to the deeply learned Katie, Catherine Luther, my gracious consort at Wittenberg, grace and peace. Right? He, was, he was romantic. Then he starts making fun of her in this one time, because she got really anxious, because he was the most wanted dead man in all of Europe. So, you know, he's writing back to her. This is funny. And he's, he says, To my dear wife, Catherine Luther, doctoress and self-tormentor. You know, she's so anxious. At Wittenberg, my gracious lady, grace and peace in the Lord. Now, this one time she writes a letter and she says, I've been losing sleep. I'm so anxious about you. People want you dead. And he returns in this cute little letter. He says, To the saintly, anxious lady, Catherine Luther, owner of Zulsdorf at Wittenberg, my gracious dear wife, grace and peace in Christ, most saintly lady doctoress, we thank you kindly for your great care for us, which prevented you sleeping. For since you began to be so anxious, we were nearly consumed by a fire in our inn just outside my room door. <laughs> and yesterday, doubtless, on account of your anxiety, a stone fell upon our heads and almost crushed us as in a mousetrap. And over and above, when, our, when the masons came, after only touching the stone with two fingers, another fell and it was as large as a pillow and two handbreadths wide. We had you to thank, O oh anxious lady, for your care in all of this. But happily, the dear holy angels guarded us also." I fear if you do not cease being anxious, the earth may at last swallow us up and elements pursue us. My dear Lady Katie, is this how you have learned the catechism and the holy faith? Pray and leave it to God to care for us. That's a, that's a good husband. He knows what his wife needs and calms her anxieties. His last words to her in a letter which never got sent to her, it was found in his room where he died, was, I commend you to God, Martin Luther. Good husband can tease his wife just a little bit to sort of dial her back into sanity and uses pet names and is romantic the whole time through. So he calls her most beautiful of woman here. And uh, he, he uses then words to reassure her about her look. So we'll bring into a close. We were going to make it to the end of the halfway through chapter 2 tonight, but you've taken far too long. So we will uh, close out in just a few verses. He, he reassures the parts about her that she was insecure of. He says, I compare you, my love, to a female horse, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. What he's saying, that the Pharaoh's chariots was 
They were gilded with gold of the finest kings. They were beautiful and decorated. And what he's saying to her is, you may look rural, you may look more natural, you may have less of the makeup, but I'm going to adorn you. I already convinced you, you're the most beautiful among women, but I'm going to adorn you, I'm going to put decorations on you, I'm going to gild you with gold, I'm going to help you fill in all of your insecurities, because I think you are beautiful. Verse 10 and 11, he says, uh, you know, you don't like your complexion. Every husband knows this. You don't like your complexion, or you don't like the, the things on your skin at different parts of the, you know, seasons or whatever. He says, I really love the way the jewelry contrasts with your skin. Right? He, he says in verse 11, uh, uh, verse 10, sorry, and, the, and then the backup dancers come in verse 11. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck, actually there's a long neck we see later on. This big, tall, skinny neck. He goes, your neck is beautiful with a string of jewels. And the others chime in and sing, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So he starts decorating. He loves her, and then he buys her jewelry. All right, women, third chance. Do you like jewelry presents? <sighs> you are the most boring wives. <laughs> you need this book probably more than your husbands do. You mares. The Lord wants to bless you through compliments of your husband and jewelry of your husband, and that's a good thing, a good gift. And so a husband knows the insecurities of his wife and loves to secure her and encourage her in a very individual, very unique, and very covenantal love. It's not just that he says, no, you're a brunette. I always love brunettes. <whistles> Wrong line, right? And she goes, oh, I'm short. He goes, ah, I find heaps of short women hot. Not what he says. He said, that would, he'd no more King Solomon. He says, yeah, but I love you. I don't just like a type. I don't just like this kind of woman. I love you. So as whatever you look like, that's the thing I'm into. I love you. He elaborates all over her, his words about her beauty, and he encourages her. Now, we're going to see onwards into the next verses of, of next week how the, this becomes physical and how they keep on going back and forth with words in the lead up to, their, to, 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 to then a scene that seems like it's a snapshot backwards before their, their wedding, and then we get a wedding scene. It's all very romantic. But look at me to verse 7 of chapter 2. If we shoot on through, verse 7 of chapter 2. This is the repeated phrase that comes up multiple times in the Song of Solomon. It says this. It's the woman talking to the other young women. Oh, I adjure you. I demand you. I command you. I exhort you, she's saying. I adjure you, I, I'm begging you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gadels or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the thing about the way God's designed us to enjoy love. It is all-consuming, and it's meant to be physical, and it's meant to be sexual. And that means that she's saying, if it's not time that you can reasonably get engaged and married without unreasonable, you know, without sin, all sin is unreasonable, if, 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 then, then do not set about stirring up and kindling love and affections here and there. If you can't, this is my advice to people, is usually if you cannot reasonably afford and, and be able to be married within about 12 months, don't even start dating. Keep your mind out of that sphere and... Focus on the Lord and wait, because once you kindle it, it becomes a roller coaster. It snowballs, and here's God's blessing, it's meant to. So instead of 
confusing the curses of sin with the blessings of God, she says, just don't awaken it. Just leave it still until such a time. Now here's where some of us find ourselves. Some of us need to rekindle this love and get back that affection. That's the married people. And some of you need to go home and do as James says. Do not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. I don't care what she said before. Compliment her. Get her jewelry. Speak well of each other. Wives, tell your husbands what you would love and enjoy yourselves. To those who are not married but are single, you must wait. Some of them, you guys are engaged or dating And you're going against her command here. She said, don't go further. That's going to create a momentum that's going to make it hard to break out of sin. Don't dance with the line. Don't flirt with the law. Keep far away from unrighteousness or you're starting to mingle into God's blessings all sorts of thorns and brambles. Clear back. But some other people are because of their loneliness or because of your desperation or because of your feeling hopeless and helpless and and the need for attention or love, you're looking for it in the wrong way. And instead of having biblical love that you're allowing to kindle physical sexual things, instead you're running to the sexual things. Maybe it's the guys online or the pictures online or women wherever you can find them. And you're trying to kindle up the sexual romance in order to find love. And God would say, you're just going to get yourself hurt and it is sin. You will be under God's, rather than his blessings, under the cursings and consequences of sin. All of us need that thing which is far more satisfying and much more long-lasting and is the ultimate call of God to all of us. While much of God's blessings is imaged and poured out in marriage, it is only a picture of his greater blessings of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That just like Solomon... Jesus gets a bride and takes her out of the peasantry, takes her out of the dirt and the grime, cleans her up, beautifies her, and makes her a bride. This is a picture of our sin. We're not even as beautiful as the Shulamite woman. God doesn't look at us and think, well, I like this about you and this, not at all. He finds us grimy, vile, sinful rebels, and he kills his son in order to provide the cleansing blood to save us. That's the gospel. So, married, single, married for a long time, or divorced, wherever you are at, the Lord Jesus Christ is held out to you as a blessing and is commanded to you from God above. Receive him, be forgiven, trust in his name. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which which it reminds us of. Father God, we thank you that by his life in our place, he lived the perfect life we never could have. He was perfectly self-controlled. He was perfectly loving. He was perfectly fulfilling of all of your commandments. In his death on the cross, he paid for our sin. And in his resurrection, we glorify you, Lord God. You rose him from the dead to bring immortality to life. We thank you. We ask that this book would be a blessing to us, that it would enrich us and command us and bless us. And we pray all of this in the name of your holy and wonderful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.